comes looking, as it were, in the garden. Hey, where are you, God says. And the human beings are not to be found. And then finally, Ayeka, where are you? And human beings call out. The earthling says, I was here. There's some ringing going on. I don't know what it is, but... mm. You hear that? I hear it. Mm. Ah, I hear your voice. <laughs> but I was hiding. And last night, if you were with us, and even if you weren't, so here, here you go. That's all we did last night. You didn't miss much. <laughs> I was hiding. And where normally we go is, we know like, oh, he was hiding. How silly of them. What do they think? They're going to hide from God? What a, that's silly. And then the moment of, oh, I heard your voice. I got scared. I was ashamed, and so I went to hide. And if we were to interrogate that moment of, like, I heard your voice, I got scared. And then that's where most of us, I'll speak for myself, that's where I, that's where I want to go hide. is because I feel like I've done something, and I'm a little bit of, uh, overwhelmed by what I did. And it's that moment where we think, oh, I'm vulnerable, I'm naked, I'm scared. And then we go to hide. But what we didn't notice, many of us who grew up in yeshiva and kind of traditional day schools, we didn't notice how remarkable it is that Adam or whatever earthling first human said, oh, I heard your voice, I got scared, and I was hiding. It's amazing. Didn't have to respond, didn't have to pick up the phone, didn't have to give an explanation. Where were you? I was out. I was hiding. Wow. I was hiding. And what we left last night with was this. Because hiding hurts. When hiding ends, healing begins. Hmm. And then when healing begins, it begins almost always because there's a here I am moment. He named me, here I am. And the question we asked last night, which in the story I told about myself getting lost in Tel Aviv, 
I didn't want to be found. That's a really good question to ask ourselves. Do we want to be found? Sometimes we go hiding for a decade, two decades, and be like, you know, I'm too busy. Because if I come out of hiding, I won't be able to do the thing I'm doing. So we convince ourselves of that, right? I need to hide to get this done. I got my man lair. I got my whatever the equivalent is in any other, you know, you have your place. Do we want to be found? Which leads us to here. Where we'll begin today is where am I hiding now or where do I hide and can I admit that to myself and to others? This is awakening the voice that can say, it's me. Please find me. I'm here. I'm ready to be found, maybe. As we awaken the voice, we might find that as we awaken the voice, it's not just one voice, though, that comes with it. Maybe many voices come. There's a story told about a new rabbi who comes to a town. It's a very well-established congregation, no startups. He kind of comes to the town. It's been there for a while. And every week on Shabbat, the same scene unfolds. It goes something like this. They come to the most important moment in the prayer service known as the Shema, the six words that affirm Adonai Echad, that there's one reality, one God. Those six words that are the cornerstone of our tradition, the centerpiece. And as the rabbi in his community comes to this moment, one half of the community, this half, they stand. You don't have to. <laughs> and the other half sits. Week in and week out. The ones who are standing say to the ones who are sitting, this is the most important part of the Jewish service for Thousands of years, our people, as martyrs, went to their death with these six words. This is so essential, we should stand for it. And the other group yells across the way and says, No, the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law says that if you were to come to the Shema and you're seated, don't get up, stay seated. This is happening week in and week out, and it's ruining the prayer service. Nobody's coming. So the rabbi hears, luckily, that there's an elderly gentleman that's been around since the beginning of the synagogue, and he says, I'm going to go find this person, and I'll bring along one representative from each one of these camps. We're going to go and find out what the truth is once and for all, and put this to rest. And they come, and they find the elderly gentleman. And the ones who stand begin, they say, isn't it true that from the beginning of our shul, whenever we came to the Shema, we stood. And the elderly man says with a weak voice, no, that wasn't the tradition. Now it's the turn of those who sit. They say, ah, so then isn't it the tradition that from the beginning of time we sat? No, says the elderly man, no, that wasn't the tradition. At this point, the rabbi has had enough. He says, enough is enough. I came here for an answer. He cuts in angrily, and he says, I don't even care what the tradition is. Just tell them one way or the other. Do you know what goes on in services every single week? One group sits, the other group is sitting, the other group is standing, and they yell at each other across the way, at which point the old man interrupts and says, that is the tradition. <laughs> That is the tradition. And as much as this story is funny, and as much as this story tells a story of 
what is known sometimes lovingly as two Jews, three opinions. <laughs> it's also a lament. It's a lament that it's so difficult for us to agree. It's so difficult to come eye to eye. But I don't want to read it as a lament this morning. I want to read it as a valorous story. Because what's remarkable about this story is that when it comes to the prayer of unification, we are torn. And that isn't a bad thing. The tears in that community, the tears between one group and another, one who stands and one who sits, it is indeed true that we have not dual loyalties, but we have competing values. We are torn as Jews, and we are torn as humans. We have multiple voices that live within inside of each and every one of us. Only a fool can live a life without being torn. I didn't say that. A great rabbi named Abraham Isaac Cook. He wrote about There he is. The rabbi that lived at the turn of the 20th century and he was himself torn between his embrace of secular Zionism and his lifting up of all of those who were working on behalf of the Jewish people. He was the original father of religious Zionism. He himself was made of two different streams of orthodoxy on his mother's side and on his father's side and he combined them in himself. He was torn. He was never orthodox enough even though he looked like that. In the world of orthodox religious tradition, he was too lenient towards the secularists. He would find himself with the poets and the literary theory, literary, literary, literary people who were in Israel at the time. He found himself not religious enough, too willing to be loving, too willing to be accepting on the one hand. And on the other hand, nobody trusted him on this side either. You see, look what he looked like. <laughs> Is he really one of us? Rav Cook wrote in a moment of absolute transparency into his inner life, in one of his diaries, which was published posthumously, he wrote, My greatest ambition is to connect. Whoever said about me that I have a torn soul said it well. Of course my soul is torn, How can we imagine in our mind someone whose soul is not torn? One of the great four words, only the inanimate, only that which can't speak is intact, is whole, but Adam, who shifot of chiot, we are torn by conflicting ambitions, internal wars are always in us, and the role of humans, and the entire work of our lives is to find some great uniting principle that can unite the rifts in our soul. 
Rav Kook says his soul is torn. Well, here's an amazing thing that you might not know. This day, the day of Rosh Hashanah, the day on which we blast the shofar, is, appears twice in the Bible. And here in the book of Leviticus, chapter 24, verse 23, I'm sorry, chapter 23, verse 24, the Bible tells us, we just read this. Tell the children of Israel in the seventh month, on the first of the month, that's today and tomorrow. It will be a day of rest. A sacred assembly commemorated with trumpet blasts. The word is the remembrance of Truah. Truah. The blast that we know now, today, that comes as papa, 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 Originally, the term truah, of course, means to trumpet blast. But I never remember, I never forget seeing this years ago, that there was one great Hasidic master who said the word truah could be read playfully as connected to the word likroah, to tear to tear, and that those sounds of the trumpet that say pa 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 themselves evoking tears are not only tears, but tears. Rosh Hashanah is a day of being torn, a day of being torn, of being split, being held between two days. Two stories between the world of two. If the birthday of the world is about us becoming human and the world becoming, then we are forever born into a world where we are torn. I grew up as a young man hearing stories about my father's family fleeing from Berlin. They were lucky to get out, but my namesake, the one I was named for, didn't get out. They were sick in Berlin and had to be brought back to Poland, to the city of Tarnow, where they perished in the Holocaust. I grew up ensconced in a world where I passed, always, for white. And yet my mother and father, when I left the home in Great Neck, Long Island, told me to take my kippah off in certain places it wouldn't be safe. When I went to Ramaz on the Upper East Side on St. Patty's Day every year, there was no way we were going to walk down anywhere near the parade with our yarmulkes on. And I remember vividly the sense not only of being privileged and powerful, the luckiest Jewish generation ever to live, but incredibly vulnerable as we begged for someone without an Israeli accent, someone powerful like Bibi Netanyahu at the time, to speak on behalf of the people who had no good PR. For someone to speak in a language that would be persuasive, to show the world that we were still vulnerable 50, 60, 70 years after Auschwitz. That even if we felt that it could never happen here, we were never quite sure.
I'll never forget. This past year, when I sat down with a group of rabbis to have a private audience with the leaders of the Women's March, and when I stood up and said, I don't understand, why is it so hard just to say that an anti-Semite is condemned? That I became the lightning rod in the room. All of a sudden, my liberal values, my belief in the humanity of all, my belief that each and every one of us holds multiple identities. We are all torn between multiple voices, multiple places. We are hyphenated beings. We have conflicting and often alienating, even to ourselves, different positions in the world. But how could it be that all of a sudden, upon raising the voice of Jewish vulnerability in the context of a liberal progressive group, my own voice was silenced. We Jews live in what Barry Weiss, in her incredible book, How to Fight Anti-Semitism, wrote about, we live with a double bind. The double bind in which American Jews are caught is that they are at once white and not white. We are the handmaidens of white supremacy and the handmaidens of immigrants and people of color in league with the oppressed and in league with the oppressor. We can't win either way. When we move to the right, we move to the center, we move to the left, we can't find a place to land. We are torn. And someone must raise their hand and say that there is no way to find a Jewish voice for peace without making peace with our pieces. We will never, ever find a Jewish voice for shalom until we can hold, not solve, but hold our pieces. The peace in our community that says we're going to stand and the peace in our community says that we are going to sit. <laughs> to release ourselves from being split, we need a ra'ayon yoter gadol. We need a bigger holding, a bigger place that can hold those pieces without necessarily having to solve them. In our personal lives, too, when Freud spoke about what it is to be split, that I leave a part of me over here and another part of me over there, when I can only be my joy and not my joy and my sadness, when I can only be my happy and not my angry, when I can't bring all of me into the space, we are split. When we make peace with our pieces, we show up. So amazing to imagine that in the depths of despair, in the depths of disease, in the depths of illness, in the depths of loss, that a human being can find the strength, the profound courage to hold both of them together. Which one am I? Am I in mourning or is that the sun rising on another beautiful day? How do we hold that?
And what begins with, this is the tear. And what begins in us in that way becomes the mimicked dance of our lives is the shofar's cadences as we begin with wholeness, with naivete perhaps, maybe even with a lack, a lack of complexity, something so pristine, the tkiyah, the strong sound that then leads to the broken and torn day of yom tu'ah, the day of torn pieces. But survivors know that another tekiah is coming. A survivor writes, Mark Nepo, it seems clear that being a survivor is embracing the will to live. And that that embrace, whether it lasts for years or months or days or even hours, whomever it embraces, when those embrace life, they are survivors. Those who embrace life are survivors. Last year, October 27th, the morning, we remember where we were, we remember what was happening in our lives when a deranged gunman murdered 11 innocent Jews who had come to shul like all of you have come to shul this morning expecting to be held in safety and security and had that expectation shattered, absolutely destroyed. Or the gunman who walked into Chabad in Poway. We were with Claudia Gonzalez-Romo and Tamara, she had her bat mitzvah last year, Parshat Noach. And as I heard, together with Shoshana, that there had been a shooting, it became very clear, what are we to do? Should we stop services in the middle? What should we do? Should we tell people? Should we let them know right away? And as the bat mitzvah was singing, the daughter of an immigrant, a woman from Mexico who yearned to be a part of this community here in New York and to be part and give her gifts to this broader community in America, said, no, this is holding our pieces. We are torn. We are rended. But there is something that brings us together and gives us the strength to take another breath to sing another song. And what often is overlooked in the dance of the shofar is the profound lesson not only its sounds make, but the one blowing it makes. Because at the end of each of those notes, the one who blows the shofar has to take another breath, has to summon the courage to find another. This is our work. Our work in this world is to find a way to make peace with our pieces, to thread them together with a radical thread called hope. This thread 
which sows the torn and rented places. The tikvah, our people have been singing about it for centuries, not just in the anthem of the tikvah, but in the powerful expression that the word tikvah itself represents. Tikvah, or hope, is from the word kav, or thread. The British rabbi Hugo Grin tells a story about being in Auschwitz and one winter evening in the barrack, Rabbi Grin's father drew him into a quiet corner explaining that it was the first night of Hanukkah. He watched in amazement as his father plucked a few threads from his prison uniform for a wick and then lit them in the day's now melted butter ration. And then the boy became angry. He said to his father, why would you waste such precious food, Abba? Just for a little menorah? His father replied, my dear son, you and I have seen that it is possible to live a very long time without food. But listen to me, he said, you go. A person without hope cannot live even a day. And yet here we are, the Jewish people, 2,000 years of yearning for a place that we might be able to say we're safe and secure. 2,000 years of holding on to a dream, 2,000 years of toppling armies and empires. Hatikvah, the hope, is that we might be both and. That we might make peace through our pieces, not relinquishing our joy and not relinquishing our sadness. We are torn, but we are threaded by a still, small voice that says to each and every one of us, take another breath, breathe in more life. As optimists that we are, as those who see reality not getting worse with each and every event, but as those who see, as Martin Seligman says, that with every moment of defeat, there's a possible rising up. We might find it in a moment with the shofar. But for one moment, I hear the voice of a woman who called me this week from Pittsburgh to say to me that she had been watching Romamu all year. Arlene Salk. And that in watching us and in watching others, she finds the strength now to show up today where she is right now in the Tree of Life synagogue. We are bigger than our parts. This country, in its promise of e pluribus unum nu, that in every face there was a trace but that we were bigger than the states, we were bigger than our differences. We had a thread of love that could mend any rent if we could make peace with our pieces. A thread of hope, of kindness, taking a breath and listening for the still small voice.